This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, February 17th, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. On regulation and criminal justice, Antonin Scalia leaves a mixed legacy. For criminal defendants, it's stronger than you might suspect. And for regulatory agencies and their powers, it's more mixed than you might suspect. The Cato Institute's Walter Olson and Tim Lynch discuss Scalia on regulation and criminal defense. I'm going to quote here uh, from Regulation Magazine, but it was uh, part of a debate between Richard Epstein and uh, Antonin Scalia. Scalia writes here, I recall from the earliest days of my political awareness Dwight Eisenhower's demonstrably successful slogan that he was, quote, a conservative in economic affairs but a liberal in human affairs. I am sure he meant it to connote nothing more more profound than he represented the best of both Republican and Democratic tradition, but still that seems to me a particular way to put it, contrasting economic affairs with human affairs as though economics is a science developed for the benefit of dogs or trees, something that has nothing to do with human beings, with their welfare aspirations or freedoms. Now, Walter Olson, you worked with uh, Antonin Scalia. He hired you to work at Regulation Magazine. Uh, at uh, the American Enterprise Institute. Of course, regulation is here at Cato now. Tell me about uh, sort of your early interactions with him. Well, as I wrote the other day, my first interaction with him was that he gave me my dream job because I wouldn't stop arguing with him. Uh, I came in and uh, was interviewing for a job as an editor on the day-to-day work at the magazine uh, and had been recommended for this. He thought that I was not a forceful enough personality at first. And then I began arguing with him and it uh, went on and I wouldn't give up. And uh, eventually he he told uh, Anne Brunsdale, uh, who, who ran the day-to-day magazine, look, if he likes arguing this much, he'll fit in here. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> but it was an education in many ways. And his behavior as a justice on the court was not as surprising to me because as an editor, he cared passionately about a lot of the issues that he then developed on the court. He cared passionately about the rule of law, the separation of powers. Um, his own background in administrative law and as a lawyer with the federal government defending agencies against be- getting sued um, also determined a lot of the um, – I think the, the stands and, and the impulses that he showed uh, later on as a judge. We talked a little bit before we started recording about his view of regulation and how that was formed working in the government. I think you can only understand how Scalia came to feel about uh, these agency law issues if you first remember that he had worked in the administration defending agencies from being sued, but also that this was in the 70s. And the 70s were a period at which all sorts of amazing things were going on. Uh, The courts had, uh, after uh, decades of uh, relative deference to agencies, had begun giving them a so-called hard look, uh, giving them a much harder time overturning their actions, but not primarily because the people regulated by the regulatory agencies were suddenly enjoying a success. It was because uh, cases were flooding in, uh, helped by Congress, of people who wanted harder and faster regulation and were now exercising new rights to sue an agency to make it regulate harder and faster um, or to shut down a federal uh, construction project, a, a dam or whatever. But But a lot of them were cases demanding regulation and all of a sudden, the D.C. Circuit, the Federal Appeals Court in Washington was 
uh, ordering agencies to regulate uh, and uh, often on the basis of uh, very incomplete records where the judges saw that some uh, – you know, that there was some policy area that looked attractive for the public interest and the agency for some reason was dragging its heels saying it's not enough of a scientific record or we're worried about trampling on people's rights. And the judges would then order the agencies to regulate. And it's like the cat in the stove. You know, the cat will not sit down on a hot stove again but also will not sit down on a cold stove. And uh, Scalia's saw so many – excesses of agencies being ordered to uh, um, uh, take action or regulate when uh, they, they were appropriately holding back that he built into his view of these things a lot of deference toward agencies and that carried on. Uh, and he also built in a deep, deep suspicion of some of the people who were trying to get their way through this litigation, uh, congressional staffs for example and we'll talk about that in his skepticism of uh, legislative history, uh, but in general, a skepticism of uh, self-appointed public interest spokespeople who show up and um, uh, demand that something change in government. Now, specifically with respect to legislative history, there, uh, particularly in very recent cases, uh, Obamacare cases, the uh, legislative history uh, was believed to play a larger role. And so what was his suspicion regarding something beyond the statute, the text of the statute? Scalia, more than any other justice, came to be identified with the view that you just should leave legislative history alone. Don't rely on it. Don't um, uh, use it to construe even hard cases in gray areas. Uh, And again, it was shaped by the abuses he had seen because uh, by the 1970s, it was – common. It was typical for Congress to pass some vaguely worded new statute that sounded good and would get them uh, favorable response on the editorial pages. Uh, and then the congressional staffs, perhaps three months later, six months later, would put out uh, a committee report um, uh, or the uh, some other documents that would uh, purport to explain what all that vague language meant. Now, this was done often after the fact, after their bosses had voted. Uh, this was done in conjunction with the particular interest groups who were hoping to get something out of the statute. And often the results were a legislative history that was uh, way over more favorable to the interest groups or or that uh, resolved against uh, various innocent parties, issues that had been left open in the statute. And that was a shell game. That was a way in which Congress preserved its popularity. This is a theme that runs through all of uh, Scalia's writing was that Congress had turned into a bit of a racket for doing only popular popular things while shoving responsibility for other parts of the process, the unpopular parts where you took away people's rights or hurt them, shoving it to other other places that were less visible, sometimes into the legislative history, sometimes to the courts, sometimes to agencies. But Congress wanted to evade responsibility. All right. Uh, Tim Lynch, uh, I'm going to quote to you. This is uh, Antonin Scalia's dissent in the case of Sykes v. United States. Uh, where the court is dealing with what is a violent felony under the Armed Career Criminal Act, one of several cases in which they uh, deal with that issue. Fuzzy, leave the details to be sorted out by the court's legislation is attractive to the congressman who wants credit for addressing a national problem but does not have the time or perhaps the votes to grapple with the nitty-gritty. In the field of criminal law, at least, it is time to call a halt. I do not think it would be a radical step. Indeed, I think it would be highly responsible to limit ACCA to the named violent crimes. Congress can quickly add what it wishes because the majority prefers to let vagueness reign. I respectfully 
dissent. So in, in criminal law, how, how did Scalia perform from a libertarian perspective? Well, that's a great quote and one of the things that Scalia felt very strongly about was that especially in the criminal law area, the line between lawful conduct and unlawful conduct ought to be very clear to give people fair notice as to whether their conduct uh, was lawful or unlawful. And he – you could see his impatience growing over the years uh, like Walter was saying, like maybe initially when he came on the court, there was this deference to Congress, maybe some deference uh, to regulatory agencies as they churned out rules and laws. But you could sense if you read his opinions over the years that there was this growing impatience uh, about uh, the laws that they were enacting and he looked at it from the point of view of people who had to comply with this. And he just kind of like in the criminal area, he, he just kind of like lost patience, I would say, over the past 10 or 15 years and said, look, people are entitled to due process of law. That means they are entitled to fair notice as to where the line is. And often the courts would um, not hold Congress to the fire on that principle, whereas he was saying, no, this is vague and it's going to be declared unconstitutional. If Congress wants to come back and rewrite it and be more clear, that's fine, but we're going to hold them to that standard. Uh, here's a, another quote. This is from uh, uh, Jonathan Blank's blog post, Justice Scalia, underappreciated Fourth Amendment defender, quoting from Maryland v. King on uh, the warrantless DNA collection of criminal suspects. Uh, Scalia writes, the Fourth Amendment forbids searching a person for evidence of a crime when there is no basis for believing the person is guilty of the crime or is in possession of incriminating evidence. That prohibition is categorical and without exception, it lies at the very heart of the Fourth Amendment. That's right. I mean Scalia, uh, when people – sometimes people are surprised to learn how good he is on some criminal law issues. When it comes to the limits on government that were explicitly put into the Constitution, jury trial, Fourth Amendment cases about uh, the requirement for warrants or unreasonable searches. He would come to the defense of these provisions when he thought the government was overreaching and when he had reached that conclusion that the government had overreached, then in typical Scalia fashion, it was a very forceful opinion where he came down on the side of, look, we have this constitutional provision. The government is overreaching. This has dire consequences down the road. It's the responsibility of the court to defend the constitutional text. And he would have these very forceful opinions that uh, uh, were very wonderful to read. Okay, So for uh, criminal defendants, uh, I mean the constitution, uh, in particular the Bill of Rights, speaks very clearly about what the rights of criminal defendants are and speaks uh, about that more than a lot of things. Right. I mean when you look over the Bill of Rights, a lot of them pertain to our criminal justice system. And some other, you mentioned the Fourth Amendment case. Uh, when it comes to the Sixth Amendment, it uh, talks about a right to a jury trial. This is another area where Scalia was very forceful. We had sentencing rules and different procedures that kind of shifted decision-making uh, away from juries and towards judges uh, in hate crime statutes and in other areas. And Scalia would say, no, this is an important decision. This is something that should be reached by a jury unanimously instead of having a single judge make a decision in a criminal case that would affect the rights uh, of defendants. So he came down 
He was probably the most foremost defender of the jury trial on the Supreme Court. And also in the Sixth Amendment, there's the right to confront witnesses uh, in, in criminal cases. There was a, a case uh, back in the 90s where some legislatures uh, were enacting new procedures where if somebody was accused of child abuse, they would say, well, this is going to be traumatic for the child. So we're going to have the child testify in a separate room and it'll be videotaped. And Scalia said, no, you have a right to confront your witnesses against you. That There's no exception for child witnesses. And so he would just come down and say, this is what the Constitution says. There's no fiddling with it and there's no exceptions and we, we can't allow legislators to improvise. And so he would come to the defense of the, the right to confront witnesses in criminal cases. Walter Olson, uh, on the issue of takings, we all know how uh, the Kelo case uh, went down five to four against Suzette Kelo. But uh, on the broad issue of takings as a category, uh, did Scalia have any particular um, what is Scalia's legacy on takings? Well, speculation about that goes back quite a ways because in the Epstein-Scalia debate that preceded his appointment, of course, uh, it was about how active should the courts be in protecting economic liberties and Scalia had taken the con side of uh, let's not get carried away with these libertarian proposals, let's not um, – take it as, as easy or necessarily intended by the constitution that, that the courts protect economic liberty. And so um, I guess you could say hopes were not high. Um, you know, it would have been Scalia who had been appointed if the idea were to get um, a revolution in takings law. Uh, and yet I think he was a pleasant surprise to many of the people watching on that because even though he never went as far as Richard Epstein probably would have had Epstein been a justice, um, where there was an opportunity to extend regulatory takings laws in prudent, practical ways, uh, getting better relief, better remedies for those whose property value had been knocked down in value to not, more or less nothing, uh, then he would proceed and do that. And uh, one of the interesting results is that by the cases of recent years, uh, and I'm thinking here particularly of the Arkansas game and fish one involving flooding of water, uh, it wasn't just Scalia. He had the liberals on board too. He had Ruth Ginsburg on board with the idea that regulatory takings could be compensated. How would you characterize uh, Scalia's originalism? Clearly, there were some cases where he did not appear to be uh, following clearly the letter of the constitution or a statute, but uh, how would you characterize it? In speeches, Scalia would often describe himself as a faint-hearted originalist and I've always found that to be an important modifier and in fact, it's not possible to understand uh, the patterns of his jurisprudence without keeping the faint-hearted in mind because uh, one of the reasons originalism had always been rejected by generations of law professors was you couldn't have the modern administrative state if you took the constitution uh, and its original meaning seriously. The whole thing would clatter to the ground and you would have a revolution. And Scalia had other good responses to the objections to originalism but in this case, it was partly a preemptive surrender. He said in essence, yes, I know it would collapse and so uh, I don't favor pulling down the whole house of cards. Um, uh, 
And in many of these cases, you could see a difference from area to area. Uh, I compare it to the, the children's game where you put up a, a bundle of sticks or something and you see whether you can take out an individual one without making the whole structure collapse. Uh, over on the administrative side, he was cautious and uh, did not strike down things that would result in Social Security being abolished. Uh, but in criminal law, that was an area where uh, I think his view was, yes, you can go back to the full panoply of originally intended rights and the heavens will not fall. Uh, just because you're giving originally intended amounts of due process to people does not mean the government can't function. They've got to be more careful with their cases, uh, but they, um, uh, that society will not be overrun by criminality. However, when it came to like the federalization of criminal law, uh, this is where his faint-hearted aspect came in, like in the Rage case where people were challenging federal jurisdiction of marijuana laws against uh, a woman in California. And then he had Justice Thomas on the court who was considered himself to be an originalist. And Thomas was prepared to say these federal laws on marijuana are simply unconstitutional. And this is a, a big example of where Scalia just wouldn't go that far as Thomas would. So I think a, a one part of his – how he described himself as faint-hearted was he had to start defending himself when Thomas was filing opinions in the same case saying, I'm an originalist and this is inconsistent with the Constitution of 1787 and this thing must go. Scalia was like, sometimes yes, sometimes no. And I think that was part of his – why he called himself a faint-hearted was kind of to defend himself against Thomas over here filing even more radical uh, decisions when it came to originalism. With Thomas, Thomas says, you know, if you, I can be persuaded that something is inconsistent with the Constitution, he's practically willing to go all the way back. With Scalia, he would be – if he even if he was persuaded, that was kind of step one in his analysis. Step two was like whether too many years have passed, if, whether so much reliance interests have built up over the years, he may not go back that far and be willing to overturn something that he would admit is inconsistent with the Constitution of 1787. Yeah. I think that's very true and it's one of the reasons why the Rage case was seen as especially disappointing by a lot of Scalia's friends is because that was a case where you could have taken out that particular brick and uh, there would not have been a collapse of the whole structure. It was consistent uh, with his other federalism cases, some of which had struck down some fairly important laws. But uh, did, didn't Rach offer this then opportunity to uh, dismantle Wickard and uh, some other <laughs> other cases. I mean, didn't didn't it present at least what, that? Was he willing to to dismantle Wickard? I think. Uh, equally relevant about Rage is that it was an opportunity to roll back some federal power without necessarily overruling Wickard. And uh, with Wickard as with many of the other uh, key cases that established the New Deal, for example, it's been talked about by libertarians and others for a long time, uh, too much delegation might be unconstitutional. The unconstitutional delegation doctrine, um, if taken seriously and there's you know, a lot of constitutional warrant for it, would make the whole structure come clattering down. He never endorsed that theory. He basically treated it as a lost cause. And was Wickard v. Pilburn a lost cause? I, someone else may know better whether he specifically spoke about it. Walter Olson is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, and Tim Lynch directs the Cato Institute's Project on Criminal Justice. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>